ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Jen Leake. This is Rear Vision. Writers and actors in Hollywood have stopped work, and it's the first double strike since 1960. That's a big deal in itself, but this action is a bit different, and the way TV and movies are made could be on the verge of transformation. And the threats Hollywood is facing around the use of artificial intelligence could be a fight your industry will need to confront as well. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. This isn't a regular negotiation. It's been a long time coming and so much has shifted in the industry so quickly, so dramatically, that it really feels like you know, this this massive turning point in the future of writing and acting for film and television. This strike is a strike of the actor that you don't know on the street, the one that you don't recognize, the one that's on the periphery supporting the ones that you ask for a selfie with. Actors and writers are striking for lots of reasons, but one of them is how they're getting paid, their residual fees. And incidentally, this is also why they stopped work in 1960. So what is a residual? Michael Schulman is a staff writer for The New Yorker, covering arts and culture. They're what the creative people who make the product get when the show is reused in some way, whether that's a rerun on television, selling it as a DVD, because SAG over the decades has insisted that actors have to keep getting paid when it's reused, actors continue to get money as long as the show has a life in some way. Hollywood is always on shaky ground. You know, it's never really settled. The power dynamics are always shifting. The technology is always shifting. And I think those kinds of upheavals often result in the creative classes and the the studios butting heads at a certain point. Because if there's a change in the technology, there's going to be a, a change in how people get paid. My name is Hadley Mears, and I'm a historical journalist based in Los Angeles. I think people really need to remember when they're thinking about Hollywood, especially folks who don't live here, is that this is a factory town. It has been a factory town since Hollywood came to Los Angeles in the 19-teens, and a factory town it remains. And most of the people working on sets are basically working-class people who are trying to make a living and have the benefits of having these really strong unions who look out for them. So behind the glitz and glamour is a lot of really hardworking union members. Writers have been on strike since early May and the actors joined them last month. Both unions are trying to negotiate new deals, which they do every three years, with the Alliance of Motion, Picture and Television Producers. They represent the studios and streaming services. We're going to look at what the unions are asking for and why these talks have broken down a bit later. The story starts, though, in the early days of Hollywood, before the workforce got unionised. (laughs) 
There had been interest in starting unions for actors and writers as early as the 1920s, but the studio bosses did not want this to happen. Their response was to create the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. They hand out the Oscars. Ronnie Regev is the author of Working in Hollywood, How the Studio System Turned Creativity into Labour. We're going to be the union, right? We're going to have this organization and it will have representation of all branches of the industry, uh, producers, writers, directors, actors and craftspeople. And any issues that have to do with labor, we're going to talk about and reach agreements together. And for six, seven years, this worked well. Brother, can you spare a dime? But attitudes started to change as the industry felt the economic pain of the Great Depression. Technology also took a leap forward with the introduction of sound. Everyone kind of bonded together under the economic duress and decided, OK, we really need a union. And so that's when SAG was formed in, uh, in 1933. It was also not incidentally a moment of major technological change. You know, this was the rise of the talkies. It feels like these kind of unions, Screen Actors Guild, etc., they're quite unique in the way that traditionally, if you're at the top of your industry, you're probably not necessarily going to join a union. Such a broad workforce that they're catering for. Studios are not allowed to hire people who are not in the unions. So once, you know, the, the majority of the industry and the majority of a profession decides they want a union and they vote for it, even if you as a successful actor decided for yourself that you didn't want to belong, you're going to have a problem because you will not be able to work. I don't know many unions, certainly not in the traditional unions, right, that they represent people so different. They represent George Clooney and also the actress who plays his waitress or the actor who plays his driver in the same movie, right? And they have this one line. And they both are members of the same union. They make very, very different salaries. These unions were set up to try and take care of both ends of the profession, right? Of the lower ranks, the people who make minimum wage. So that's one thing, for example, the unions did. They set minimum wages. Uh, but they also took care of problems that affected the Clark Gables of the world and the Joan Crawfords of the world. And those were, uh, first of all, hours. Uh, actors, again, used to work crazy hours, right? There were no day, no night. And so they they instituted this kind of eight-hour workday or 12-hour workday or certain periods of rest. And they also set up the right of actors to negotiate their contracts with agents. Not that it didn't exist before, but they they used it to make sure that studios enable agents to get these stars the higher pay that they wanted. High-paid actors certainly had reason to join it. Still do. Both unions really started to flex their collective power with the arrival of television. Film studios began making a huge amount of money licensing their movie catalogues to TV stations and actors and writers began to argue they too should get a share of the profit, a concept which became known as residuals. We tend to think of the production, that is what's on the screen, the actors and so forth, as what's important in Hollywood. But the real power in Hollywood has always been with distribution. The businesses that distribute the product, that's where the power is. And the screen actors had been trying to negotiate residuals with the producers ever since 1948. 
every time the contract came up, they say, we want residuals for this new medium of television, and the producers would put them off. David Prindle wrote a book on the history of the Screen Actors Guild called The Politics of Glamour. This battle over residuals came to a head in 1960 when a young Ronald Reagan was head of the Screen Actors Guild. So in 1960, both the writers and the actors struck to try and force the producers to give them residuals. And that was why the strike was so long and so bitter, because the producers and the distributors refused to pay residuals. So eventually, the actors compromised. They agreed to give up all their residuals up to 1960 in return for getting residuals on all movies that would be on television from that moment forward. The contract that was eventually negotiated set up the model for residual payments. It also secured health insurance and pensions, which actors and writers access through union membership. Strikes in Hollywood since then have followed a familiar pattern. A new technology is introduced, which leads to conflict over residuals. It happened in 1980 with the arrival of VHS and cable. And of course, it's happening now with streaming services. So what is the streaming model? How did we get to where we are now? Initially, companies like Netflix had a lot of money and their goal was to bring in as many new subscribers as possible. Their strategy? Make an enormous amount of content. Oh, it was like the Wild West. I mean, I had screenwriter friends who were like, you cannot believe the money that Netflix is throwing at me to just write, you know, this first draft of something that's never going to get made. I mean, it was really a bonanza, but that quickly, quickly dried up. And then people also started to realize that, yes, they were getting these huge initial chunks of money, but then they were getting really nothing on the back end. And that's what your rank and file journeyman writers and actors in Hollywood live off of are those residuals, are the money that keeps them able to pay their mortgage month after month. And when that's gone, that big chunk of money you got in the beginning doesn't really matter. Michael Schulman examined an early hit show for Netflix called Orange is the New Black. It was released in 2013, when the company was primarily known for sending out DVDs in the mail but they were beginning to shift into making and distributing their own content via the internet. The first really big one that got attention, which was actually the first show produced specifically, exclusively for Netflix, was House of Cards, which started in early 2013. And then Orange's New Black came a few months later. So the company was coming off of the sort of prestige and star power of House of Cards, but Orange's New Black is the show that became a real ground-up phenomenon. It was really revolutionary in a couple of ways. One of them is the way that people received it, uh, which was online and online only. It wasn't on TV. And they got it all at once, the binge-watching model. So yeah, I think it had a huge impact. It established Netflix as a place where you would go to find a show that was nowhere else. It was a major building block in the creation of streaming television as a concept and of the brand Netflix. And that in turn was a building block for the streaming economy that 
now has sort of eaten up all of television and all Hollywood. Michael spoke to 10 actors who worked as supporting cast over its five-season run. First of all, the streaming model is incredibly confusing. It took me like two weeks to just call around people and try to figure out how it worked. Most of the actors I talked to from the show had no idea how it was calculated themselves. And even, you know, like, I'm not sure even the people at the companies like really know how it's calculated. Like SAG has a formula. Um, And when the show started in 2013, SAG had pretty recently created a sort of working model for how, how streaming residuals would work. It's actually a percentage of the licensing fee that, say, Netflix pays Lionsgate to have the show on Netflix. So it's not based on, like, the wild success of the show, how many people are watching it on Netflix. Netflix doesn't even make public how many people are watching the show. Emma Miles played a recurring role on Orange is the New Black. Here she is comparing residuals she gets from a network TV show versus streaming. For something like an episode of Law & Order SVU that you would have gotten a good, like, several thousand dollars from it re-airing on television, you get about, I don't know, $20 for people to be able to watch Orange, all five seasons of Orange, in perpetuity. Actors have been getting terrible residuals from this new model for quite a while. Why is this rearing its head now? I mean, it, it's been a problem for, for quite a while. Right. Well, think back to the 1948 when the actors first said to the producers, you know, the, this thing, television, uh, it looks like there might be movies shown on it. Let's talk about residuals. And the producers said, are you kidding? There's nothing but uh, local wrestling matches and roller derbies on television. We're not going to talk to you about that. The new contract would come up every three years, and the actors would once again say, see, there's more and more movies all the time, and the producers say, well, never mind. The frustration built up over 12 years. That's why there was a strike in 1960 rather than in 1948. But it's exactly the same thing here. When the contracts were being negotiated two and three times ago, it was a new thing. Nobody understood it. Nobody understood what the how big it would be or what the revenue would be. Another fundamental difference in how streaming services work compared to traditional TV and movies is the information creators can access about how many people are watching their work. Essentially, tech companies have taken over Hollywood. And traditionally, if you think about how TV and movies work, we know box office numbers for movies. We know Nielsen ratings for television. We generally know how many people are watching a show. But in the streaming model, in the Netflix model, you know, it's like information is power. Tech companies are used to keeping their data private and they've been very opaque about viewership numbers. That puts the creators in a much less advantageous position when they're trying to negotiate. If they know something, they feel something might be a huge success because they can sort of tell from the fans chasing them down the street, the coverage it's getting in the media, the social media engagement. They know this show is a hit, but they don't really have the numbers. Mm -hmm. And the residuals just come in so tiny. This is Rear Vision. I'm Jen Leake. 
the rapid expansion and willingness to finance more and more content worked while money was cheap. But higher interest rates have lowered the valuations of big streaming platforms. And they are all cutting back and consolidating across the board. My name is Glenn Dolman. I am a screenwriter and the creator of uh, Bloom on Stan. And I'm currently on the picket lines in Los Angeles. I found it kind of amazing listening to kind of fellow writers in the, in the last few months, the, the writers of Ted Lasso, which was a huge hit. Everyone wanted to emulate the success of that. And they haven't, you know, seen any more success-based uh, profit than, than a one-season show that, you know, has come and gone. So, in my career, I started off in the the late '90s, and I and I still see residual checks for some of the the programs I wrote back then. But since I started working for streaming, not at all, because they they buy it forever and a day, and you and you don't see any profit from that. The potential role of artificial intelligence in the filmmaking process is another key part of this strike action. Actors are concerned their likeness could be used over and over again without their authorization and without being compensated. Writers are worried AI will be used to generate scripts. A, a year ago, this conversation would have been science fiction. That you know, the, the, the idea that we're actually genuinely worried about AI writing our scripts, uh, but now it is very real and and very plausible. I mean, experts who working with AI companies believe it's only a couple of years away before you'll see a, a quite a serviceable full movie, full series with AI generated everything that an audience may appreciate. And the writers guild over here are not naive enough to say you can never use it, you always have to use human rights. We're just wanting some some stipulation. We're wanting some some regulation on it, the same way that the directors, when they negotiated their deal, and they didn't end up striking because they negotiated, they were able to say, if AI is used, there has to be a human director present. And we're wanting something similar. And so it really begs this sort of bigger existential question of how much we value a human, how much we value the, the author of, of a piece. Just to add more sort of fear and panic is that yes. the, the longer this goes on, what AI substitutes are going to be put into the system while they can't access writers and then, you know, yeah. will those systems be taken out again when, when writers are hopefully yeah. back at work? Like it's a, it's a risk, obviously a risk you've got to take. You, you've sort of got to take it. There's no way around it. But, yeah. but yeah, there was an article that came out last week of the studios are secretly on AI spending sprees right now, as they would be. Think about it. They haven't got writers there. They need IP. They need product. Yeah. Perfect time without any regulation in place to just see, what, see what's out there. What can they get from AI creators? The AI thing I feel like is going to be super thorny to to sort out because the technology is so young, you can't really make a provision for something that we don't actually know how it's going to uh, evolve, you know? Oh, yeah. No, but that's the point. You know, we don't know where AI is going, but it's going somewhere. Mm. And I think that the union is very smart, or both unions, the WJ as well, to say, we don't know what, what this is capable of, but we need to create guidelines now. And if you look 
in the past, again, I, I think in the 1980s, SAG strike was just at the dawn of video cassettes. People didn't know there wasn't a big business. Mm. People didn't have VCRs generally in the in the public, but they could see what was coming. You can't wait until it's established in a huge business because then you can't get that piece of the pie. You have to kind of start before it's a thing. And I think that's why AI is such a big topic now, because they know that if they wait, it could catch on. Extras could start getting like scanned, you know, their faces scanned and then like, you know, no one will ever need to pay an extra again because they'll all be uploaded to the AI cloud or whatever. And they have to address it now before it's a thing, before we know what it's capable of, before people start using it in some standard way. You know, I work in radio, but I'm thinking about how AI might affect my industry. So it's another reason why this strike is potentially um, hitting something for people that don't work in the industry. Absolutely. I think AI is a looming threat for many, many industries. There's people all over the world who are fearing these advances that could make our jobs obsolete. So if SAG and AFTRA are able to at least put some moral framework around that and 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 put some restrictions on where does you know efficiency start and stop and where does human creativity have its place in this new world i think that will be really valuable not just in hollywood the little factory town of hollywood but it will have reverberations uh, in many big industries actors are also asking for paid auditions. And it's all got to do with the rise of self-tape auditions. Instead of meeting with a casting director, actors are being asked to film their own auditions. This is not a new concept, but the practice took hold during COVID and now they're the norm rather than the exceptions. Vanessa Chester is an LA actor on strike and one of the founders of Auditions Are Work. There are people that I've spoken to that just started acting in 2019 or 2020, and they've never met a casting director. And that is one of the most crucial things, not the most crucial, but it's something that really fleshes out your career. Mm -hmm. It's these relationships and they see how you grow and you get redirects and you get to see what it's like to have kind of a preview of what it could be like on set. You know, Mm -hmm. if you've never started before, an audition kind of gives you an idea of what this animal is about. I noticed that when I have in-person auditions now, which are pretty few and far in between and they're usually commercial based, it's like I've had 52 cups of coffee because I'm so excited. I And I didn't realize how much I get from just seeing friends in the waiting room. We're missing the personal connection and it's also become extremely disruptive. There is no work-life balance anymore. Now that we are doing everything from home, it's very hard to distinguish when you're working and when you're just chilling out. The SAG actor contract actually already has an audition pay clause, but it's not automatically enforced. And until recently, a lot of actors had no idea. Thomas Ochoa is also an actor on strike in Hollywood. The audition pay provisions have existed in this TV theatrical contract since 1947. Mm. So they've been there for almost 90 years, but there's no automatic enforcement. So the only way for actors to access that compensation is to file individual claims Mm. where you have to file a claim with the union and the union files that with production. So production knows that, you know, Thomas Ochoa 
audition for this project and he wants to be paid for it. This provision was put into the contract in the 40s when the studio system was beginning to crumble and non-contract actors were already afraid of scarcity and not having access to the roles that they wanted. That could mean that far less people are booked to audition. We don't think that's a bad thing. Currently, the number of requests that are going out for auditions is untenable. We think it's part of the reason why the angst within the union, the stress that SAG-AFTRA members are feeling, has reached such a fever pitch because we're under such, we're doing such an unreasonable amount of work for diminishing returns, you know? It used to be, you know, if you bring in 100 actors for a role, that's a solid chance. If you're bringing in 600, you have significantly decreased chances of ever booking that job. What we're being told are opportunities right now, more democratic opportunities because they're seeing more people, is actually the reverse. Uh, People are being asked to do work, but the degree to which that work is being seen, to which it's actually being scrutinized and considered is debatable. This strike action is having an impact in Australia. Big-budget US productions that were filming here have been shut down, stopping work for hundreds of cast and crew and delaying future projects. And it will impact the TV and movies available to you as a consumer. I mean, you'll definitely see the content on screens change come the fall when the traditional fall TV schedule begins because things aren't shooting. So those things won't be won't be shooting. And in my former life as an actor, you know, when I was working on a network show, we started filming in August. Well, it's August, right? So you're definitely going to see impacts starting in the fall, even if the strike ended tomorrow there would already be slight delays in the fall because the things haven't even been written yet because the writers have been on strike for four months, much longer than the actors. So you'll start seeing some um, interruptions in the cycle. But something I've been thinking about a lot is the thing that's one of the things that's a detriment to the WGA and SAG is I don't know how it is in Australia, but, you know, reality TV has really taken over a lot of the industry. And I have to be honest, most of what I watch on TV is unscripted TV, and they are not in the unions. That's non-union work. So the studios can really lean on that and kind of ignore some of these demands, maybe longer than they once could have, because they can pump out reality shows that are very cheap to produce for as long as they want, and they're pretty much guaranteed to get a big viewership. You know, there's a famous saying that uh, Irving Thalberg, the famous producer from the 1930s at MGM, once said, the most important people in Hollywood are writers, but don't let them know. So there's been this history of creatives feeling very underappreciated and often very poorly treated in Hollywood, even though in many ways they're the most important part of the business. So coming together and seeing that you have this strength in numbers and that you do have power and you can take your power back, I think is going to change the industry going forward. I mean, I really see this as a groundbreaking moment in Hollywood. What are some potential scenarios where it could be good groundbreaking and potentially bad in how it changes um, parts of the industry? I do think that the residual situation is going to change. 
if you look at the strike of 1960s, it was basically identical <laughs> in many ways to what's happening today, except it was about the new medium of TV and not getting residuals for TV rights. So it's this idea of technological advances and companies reaping the benefits of those and leaving the creatives behind. And I think what we're going to see is that people will start to be fairly compensated for their labor. But I also think the downside of that is probably, I would assume there'll probably be less content. I think the streamers overdid themselves. I think there's been way too much content. And if they actually have to pay people a fair wage, we'll probably see them be more selective, which means less jobs for the creatives as well, but perhaps the jobs that you get are um, of a higher pay. So, you know, everything is shades of grey. Hadley Mears is a historical journalist. Thomas Ochoa and Vanessa Chester are both LA-based actors and strike captains. Thanks also to Michael Shulman from The New Yorker. Also in the program, Glenn Dolman is an Australian screenwriter living in LA and on strike. Ronnie Regev is a historian and author of Working in Hollywood, How the Studio System Turned Creativity into Labour. And David Prindle wrote a book about the Screen Actors Guild called Politics of Glamour. This revision was produced by me, Jan Leake, and sound engineer Anne-Marie de Betancourt for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.